Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis chapter 27. We will be in Genesis 27 and Lord willing, 28 today. I confess it'll be kind of a a running dialogue more than an exposition. There's just too much narrative text here to cover. I do want to get all the way through chapter 50 before the Lord Jesus returns. And there's a few other books in the Bible that I'd like to preach. So we're going to try to bring some of these chapters together, and these flow together quite nicely in their narrative record of God's historic outpouring of His grace upon humanity through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The title of today's message is Human Deception and Sovereign Providential Grace Meet. Human Deception and Sovereign Providential Grace Meet. Meet. There are many who cry out, just give me Jesus. They don't want to think about their faith. They don't want to think about theology. They don't want to think about what the Bible says and how that connects with our lives and the lives of others who lived and whose lives were recorded in the Bible or who lived and died and lives were recorded in history or who are living and dying today. But we need to be theologians. We need to think biblical thoughts, and therefore we need to have our minds renewed with the Word of God. We met a man yesterday who was flying the banner of Catholicism high, and after 30 minutes or an hour's conversation with him, we found that ultimately there was a higher banner yet. It was not readily evident initially, but by the end of our conversation, we found out that he wasn't Foremost, a warrior for Catholicism, but he was foremost a warrior for free willism. And he was far more offended by God's sovereignty over all men's lives and precious souls than he was by our contentions that Roman Catholicism was rank heresy. And it was over that point of God's sovereignty over souls, God's sovereign election and predestination, it was over that point that he finally became offended and stomped off after blaspheming the one true God. On that very point, that God, your God, is a fascist. And that's the nicest thing he said. Human deception and sovereign providential grace meet. Now, we're in Genesis 27 and 28, but as an introduction, look to Romans 8, 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. You might keep your hand there in Genesis 27. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. Monergism. God is the mover. It is not synergism. God moving, man moving, or worse, man moving, and then God responding. It's monergism. God is the Savior. God is the elector, is the chooser. Man doesn't elect God. Man doesn't choose God. No one seeks God. It was that very point out of Romans 3 that became so offensive to that Roman Catholic yesterday. And we found that his Roman Catholicism ultimately was subject to his free willism. 
Because he would not tolerate the God who says, no one seeks God. No one understands. They have altogether become unprofitable. No one does good. No, not one. And ultimately, that's not my God came out of his mouth and far worse. Which we agree. That's not your God. That's been our point all day. That's not your God. The God is not your God. You have an idol in a piece of bread that you worship, bow before, pray to, and eat for justification of sin. Only you're going to die in your sins as an idolater and a blasphemer, a rank blasphemer by the end of the day. Because he would look to Romans 8, 28 through 30, and instead of receiving that as a comfort, all things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. The the called according to his purpose part would override any comfort that he could derive from Romans 8, 28. And if he dared read verse 29 and 30, there'd be no comfort at all. He would just rail against it because he will not be subject to a monergistic God. He will not be subject to a sovereign God. He will not be subject to a God who foreknows in the sense of setting his love upon, who predestines independent of anything in us. Why? Because he's not predestining us because we are conforming ourselves to his son. He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, moreover whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. We sing a beautiful hymn, All glory be to Christ. Sola de gloria. All glory be to God. Because God is the author and the finisher of our faith. All we bring to the gospel equation is sin. We are dead in our sin and trespass. I guess we also bring a carcass. And God regenerates. God illuminates. God gives the gifts of repentance and faith to those whom he is predestined or foreknown and predestined and thus he calls and thus he justifies and thus he will glorify in this golden chain of salvation. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Now some manage, some free willer folks, some free willerists, some free willerism adherents manage to swallow Romans 8, 28, maybe even choke down 29 and 30 with some milk. But they get to Romans 9. And they go into fits and convulsions. And we got to go to Romans 9. Because you know Romans 9 actually quotes Genesis. It quotes Genesis. It has its roots in Genesis. And so let's look to Romans 9. And we'll try not to get stuck. Anytime you open Romans 9, it's very dangerous. We could get stuck here a long time. Romans 9 verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one man, even our father Isaac... For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And so, 
as I said, some are able to choke down Romans 8, 28 through 30. I mean, at least it starts out so nice. It starts out with something that our flesh can appreciate. We can appreciate all things working together for our good in our flesh. But it takes the Spirit of God to actually submit yourself, to bend your knee and confess Christ, not just in general. Sure, you're kind of my Lord, whatever, if you want to be called that. All right. But as your sovereign Lord, And you subject your life, your soul, your will, your mind, and oh yeah, your theology. Your theology. What we find in the free willerists of the world, and what we found in yesterday's free willerist there, who was not really a Roman Catholic so much as a free willerist, and you can make up terms if you're a pastor, if you don't know that yet. If I can convince you of that yet, after all these years... What we found was that he will not be subject to the one true God. He will not be subject to his word. His mind is above God's mind. His theology is above God's theology. His word is above God's word. In fact, he himself is God. You are God if you'll not be subject to the true God. If you say outright, that God, that's not my God, pointing at Scripture then you're not a Christian. Now, are there Arminians that are saved? Yes, yes. But when they get to the point, the Dave Hunt point, and you'll have to do your own research on that to figure out what I'm talking about if you don't know. If you get to the Dave Hunt point, where suddenly you're confronted by the sovereignty of God, and you say, that's not my God, and then you write a whole screech slash book saying, what love is this in which you blaspheme God because he is sovereign in salvation? because he does elect and he does predestine and he does choose, then you're not a Christian. And tragically, that's, that's how Dave Hunt's life ended. I pray he repented before he died, but that, that's one of the last works that he did. and It's one of his last passionate fights that he, he fought. He fought against the one true God as he has revealed himself in Holy Scripture. Because, hear me, it's, it's nice. Our flesh likes to hear things like, you don't have to go to hell. Oh, that's great. Just believe upon Jesus. Okay, sure. Romans 10, 9, confess him as Lord. Now that, mm, flesh doesn't like that. But again, maybe I can in general get around that or get beneath that to not go to hell, right? That's a fair trade, I guess. But to bring our heart, mind will, theology, all that we are beneath God and God's revelation of himself, that takes a work of the Holy Spirit. You must be born again. You must be regenerate. Now, none of us are perfect in our theology. We're all being sanctified and and we all come to various truths at various times. And the beginning of our understanding is the fear of God. And then we flee from God's wrath to God's son in faith and we're born again. And most of us If you weren't raised in the Reformed Church, you weren't raised in a Calvinistic church, you were born again Arminians. I chose. I believed. And then you search the Scriptures and you find out, oh wait, God chose. And He chose me despite my sin, not because I was so fabulous, but because He is so gracious, unmerited favor for sinners such as I. And so Romans 9, 10 through 13, 
This Rebecca, the very Rebecca we've been studying in Genesis and we're going to today, this Rebecca conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, monergism, to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. So it's completely independent of anything in the babies, in their mother's womb. They're still in the womb. They've not been born. They've not done anything good or evil. God is carrying out His purposes, His will. And it's not of works, but of Him who calls. Our tulip, total depravity, unconditional election. Not of works. God doesn't elect anyone based upon your works, your goodness. If God elected based upon our works, our goodness, how many would he elect? Raise your hand if he would have elected you. He would not have elected you. Why? Because all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's our righteousnesses. What about our off days? Filthy rags. That's the best we could offer. And so it's all of grace. It's all sola de gloria. It's all to the glory of God. We come to the cross, not empty-handed. We come to the cross with filthy hands, full of wretched works, confessing and repenting. And Christ takes them upon himself at the cross. And he pays it all. And then he provides us his perfect righteousness. The double imputation. Our sin, including all of our righteousnesses that are filthy rags, our sin imputed to him, his righteousness imputed to us. Which is why we say, faith alone and not of works. Faith alone in Christ alone. His righteousness, his finished work, his payment on the cross, his to Telestai. And so it was said to her, the older shall serve The younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And so Esau shall serve Jacob. The Lord shall convolute the normal order of inheritance and set Jacob above Esau. In Genesis 25, verse 22, it says, But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So God, in Genesis 25, told Rebekah that the older shall serve the younger. And that's what Romans 9 is quoting. The older shall serve the younger. Now, why is the older serving the younger? Because the younger was, you know, innately righteous. He was such a good guy. He just loved God, you know, from the womb, right? He he came out of the womb praising God, walking in all righteousness, and God said, I elect that one, not the older one. No, Jacob is the supplanter. Jacob is the deceiver. Jacob is just as sinful as Esau. That's the whole point of Romans 9's declaration there, that it's God's purpose in election that's standing. God's contradicting the normal course of the world, which if you read the lineage of the Lord Jesus in the the gospels that declare it, I mean, this is a contradiction of anything we would do, right? This is a who's who of 
sinners in this list. God delights in his own glory being magnified, and that is what is right and good. And he does that by using frail sinners and making them saints. Not choosing them because they're saintly. (laughs) Making them saints by washing them in the blood of the Lamb, by grace alone, through faith alone. Now, specifically there at the end of Romans 9, 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Let me take the challenge or take the opportunity after yesterday's experience to challenge you. Get beneath the word of God. Whatever God says is true. Get beneath God. Let God be true and every man a liar. Psalm 711, and I declared this yesterday in this context, Psalm 711 says, God is a just judge, and he's angry with the wicked every day. There's only one just judge, and you do not look at him or her in the mirror. God is the just judge. Believe God and get beneath him, and know your own wretched sinful self, and don't dare, don't dare turn a finger to heaven and think that you will judge God. God is a just judge. All that he is, all that he does, all that he decrees is just. And so we bring ourselves beneath God by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we don't dare rise up against God. We certainly don't dare say, that's not my God. Or indeed, that's the truth. We're no Christian at all, but a rebel against God. In Genesis 25, verse 27, it says, So the boys grew. And Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. I don't know exactly what's in Rebekah's heart. I do know that God told her the younger, the older will serve the younger. And so when it says Esau was loved of his father because his father liked his game, his hunting, and the stew that he made, that's kind of a natural fatherly thing. I'm not going to critique Isaac for that. This is your firstborn son, even though it was, you know, seconds or minutes. They're twins, same womb, they're womb-mates. But it's your firstborn son. He's your heir. And he's a hunter, right? He's a mighty son, and he's bringing home stew. Yeah, you like this son. I mean, what dad wouldn't like that son? The other son, he's got soft skin, he's weak, he's staying home with mommy. Mom dotes on him. But does mom dote on him because he has soft skin? Does mom dote on him because he's the run to the litter, so to speak? And I'm not saying he's actually the run to the litter, but we're going to meet him one day. I've got to be careful what I say. <laughs> or does she dote on him because she knows he will be the heir? And not just the heir of the physical property, but the heir of the Abrahamic covenant the one through whom the seed, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, would come. I hope for that. I hope, although the Scripture's not explicit, I hope that she's in her motherly ministry. It doesn't say she neglected Esau. Esau went hungry. The reason he hunted is because she neglected him. He was starving. But I have hopes that she was focused on the child that God said, look, this child is the one I've chosen. This child is the one that's going to be the heir. This child is going to receive the covenant and carry on the covenant for the blessing of all mankind. And so there's the backdrop 
to which we look to rightly understand Genesis 27 and 28. Let's look there now together. And again, it's going to be kind of a running commentary. There are no points. So you can't write down any points. You can write down whatever points you like, I suppose. It's a running commentary now uh, from Genesis 27 through 28. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered him, Here I am. Then he said, Behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and make me savory food such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. And so Isaac knows he's aging. He, he knows that he will pass and that he can't know the day of his passing. Could be an hour, could be a month, could be years, but it seems somewhat imminent. Uh, he cannot any longer see And so he calls his beloved son Esau, and he wants to bless him. He wants to give his blessing, his fatherly blessing, that would result in Esau receiving that inheritance uh, to him. Now, some commentators are quite harsh of Isaac, you should know in this, because do you suppose Rebekah might have told Isaac, her husband, what God told her? Right? Right? Do you suppose perhaps it might have gotten back to Isaac that Esau already evidencing the fact that he's not a godly young man? He has already sold his birthright flippantly for a, a bit of food to Jacob. So he has already willingly given up his birthright. And God has already told Rebekah that, hey, the older will serve the younger. The younger is to get the blessing. And yet dad is calling for the older. I mean, is the stew that good? Is dad getting you know, senile? It could happen, men, right? Sometimes we don't think so clearly. We get older. We're hungry. We're hangry. There's something going on here. It would seem that Isaac is going against knowledge. Knowledge of God's will. Makes sense. So he calls his son, tells him to take his weapons out and to bring back some game and make him the stew that he loves that he might bless him before he dies. Verse 5, now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt game and bring it in. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, bring me game and make me savory food, or make savory food for me, that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring From there, two choice kids of goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father, that he may eat it, and that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing." But his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Get them for me. And he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats 
on the hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. And so the plot is laid and the steps are taken to carry it out. Rebecca overheard her husband Isaac tell Esau to go hunt, to go make him a stew and to bring it back that he might bless him. And Rebecca knows the plan of God. Rebecca knows what God said. And so Rebecca takes it upon herself to make sure God's will comes to pass through this act of deception. And I'll tell you again that many commentators are all over Rebecca. Evil, deceptive Rebecca. And I will say she should not have done it, um, but uh, Isaac should not have done what he's doing. Rebecca then responds, doing something she shouldn't do. And as the sermon of the title, or title of the sermon suggests, human deception and sovereign providential grace meet. As the opening statement of the sermon, started with Romans 8.28, suggests all things work together for the good of those who are the called. God works even within our sin for our good to carry out his purposes, which does not justify our sin, but does give God glory that he works even the sin of his elect for the good of his elect. Again, do not ever justify your sin saying, God's going to make it all work out. Don't. How did it work out when Abraham and Sarah tried to carry out God's will in a way that God did not prescribe? Well, they created a whole people group that are the enemies of God to this day. That's how. Ishmaelites. And so this is going to have negative ramifications. It does. This will lead to Isaac, excuse me, this will lead to Jacob never seeing his mother again. He'll never see her again. He'll be sent off so that Esau doesn't kill him. And he will never see his mother this side of glory again. This will lead to division between Esau and Jacob, most of their lives. And so there's a tragic result. Would God have worked it out another way had Rebecca not come up with this deception? Yes, absolutely. God said, I am going to do this. The older shall serve the younger. Did God know what Rebecca was going to do in his omniscience? Absolutely. Is God the author of sin? No. Does he use sinners for his own perfect sovereign will? Yes. Did God use the kiss of Judas, who was indwelt by Satan, thus using Satan himself and Judas simultaneously with a kiss upon the cheek of the Lord Jesus to send Jesus to the cross to be crucified for sinners? And the answer is yes. On Judas' most evil day, on Satan's most evil day, when Judas betrays Jesus, when Satan enters into Judas and lays that kiss on the Lord, sending him to the cross, they are accountable. As the book of Acts says, your lawless hands crucified. Those who murdered Jesus are accountable for their lawlessness. But God ordained the means by which he would become our crucified Redeemer. And so praise God for His amazing grace. 
that is not overcome by sinners, but ultimately we find that sinners are subject to God's grace and he works his grace out even in the midst and through the midst of sinners' lives. And so we have Jacob and his mother plotting. Jacob initially is somewhat resistant, if not out of righteousness, out of concern that he's going to fail and receive a curse instead of a blessing. Look, Esau, my brother's a hairy man. I'm a smooth-skinned man. How hairy was Esau, you ask? Hairy enough that dad would be uh, tricked by you know, a goat skin on him. That's pretty hairy. He's a pretty hairy critter. He's a man's man. Verse 18, So he went to his father and he said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. So he's getting right to the point. Let's get this done. Before what? Before before Esau comes back. But Esau said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? You went out and you hunted and and you field dressed the game and, and you've, you know, spiced it up and cooked it up and you made me the noodles I like alongside. You got it all back here. That, 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 this isn't making sense. Verse 20, but Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he said, because the Lord, your God brought it to me. Woo. Yeah, that is a deception. <laughs> Because the Lord your God brought it to me. You know, that, that kind of should send a shiver down your spine. It is a deception. And that oddly enough, it's, it's going to be kind of true too. God is even through this going to be amazingly gracious and bring to Jacob the blessing that was supposed to be his. Verse 21, Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son. Isaac's not buying it whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went over or went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Then he said, are you really my son Esau? He said, I am. He said, bring it near to me and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him and he smelled the smell of his clothing, the clothing that was Esau's clothing that Rebekah had provided him. And he blessed him and said, and here's the blessing properly. Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine and let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. Now it happened, verse 30, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau's brother came in from his hunting He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that your soul may bless me. Now, let's not miss, as I find many commentators and preachers miss, that Esau here is treacherous. Esau knows 
that he sold his birthright. Esau knows that uh, it's not supposed to go this way. Esau almost certainly knows, as Isaac certainly knows, that God has spoken to his mother and said, the older shall serve the younger. And so Esau is not in the right here. Esau is not a victim in the pure sense here, except that he's a victim of his own sin. Verse 32, And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? So he said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, Who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came, and I have blessed him, and indeed he shall be blessed. Now some say, Why doesn't Isaac just remove that blessing and give it to Esau? Well, I think. I think that Isaac knew what he was doing was wrong, that his favored son, his hunting son, his strong and hairy son, the son of savory food, was not supposed to be the son that received the blessing. And while he had been deceived, while he had been tricked by his wife and his son Jacob, nevertheless, that was the will of God. Thus he does not retract, but says, indeed, he shall be blessed. Verse 34, when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me also, my fa- oh, my father, with exceedingly great and bitter cry. Who does Esau ultimately have to blame? Esau, just like every sinner. Every sinner has his own sin to blame for their destruction and lack of blessing. Not God, not mom, not dad, not brother, not any other man, but self. Verse 35, But he said, Your brother came to me with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob, supplanter? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing, which really are one and the same. And so it was already his, Esau. What are you whining about? And he didn't take it away. You came home and exaggerated your physical condition to the point where if if Jacob didn't give you some of his food now, you're going to die. And so, yep, you'll give up your birthright. That was foolish. That was sinful. And you're paying the price of your own sin. Verse 36, Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, Indeed I have made him your master, and all his brethren I have given to him as servants. With grain and wine I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. And so 
Uh, you shall live by the sword and serve your brother until at some point you break his yoke from your neck. Verse 41, So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So after my father dies and I, I mourn a bit, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill my brother. Verse 42, and the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. He's not quiet about this. He's making it known. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with them a few days until your brother's fury turns away. A few days. Oh, that Rebekah had waited on God. She'll never see her beloved son again. A few days. Verse 45, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him, then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? What does she mean? Why should I be bereaved of you both? Because if Esau murders Jacob, Esau will be killed. He'll be put to death. An avenger will come for him. Someone else from the family. Verse 46, Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth like these two or of the daughters of the land, uh, what good will my life be to me? So Rebekah fabricates another story to justify sending Jacob away and goes to Isaac saying, look, I want Jacob to have a wife of our family lineage, send him back to my brother. And that's how... The story and deception continues. Chapter 28, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there and the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger which God gave to Abraham. And at this point, I think clearly Isaac is 100% on board with what he knew to be the will of God. This is a stronger blessing yet. This clearly is the blessing of Abraham. This clearly places Jacob in the line of Abraham as the descendant who received the Abrahamic covenant and be a blessing to the peoples of the earth. Verse 5, So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Badan Aran, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, and Esau. Verse 6, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take himself a wife from there. And then he blessed him and gave him a charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother had gone to Padanaram. Also, Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father, Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalah, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, 
to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. So he already had two Canaanite wives. Now he has an Ishmaelite wife, thinking that this might improve his position with his father. Verse 10, Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went down to Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. Let's just hit the pause button for a moment here. Consider his mental disposition. He's thinking through the recent events. He's now estranged from his family. He's now been sent away for a, quote, few days until Esau's anger passes. Uh, he, he has deceived his father, yet he has received this blessing, and he's going to find a bride amongst his father and mother's people. A grand adventure started on a really bad foot. And the adventure is going to be much less adventurous and much more laborious and long than he could ever imagine. When we get outside the will of God, we're going the long way. (laughs) If you are elect, if you are a child of God, it's going to end in glory, right? We already saw that. Romans 8, glorified. That's where it ends. But you try to go outside of God's will between predestined and glorified, and it's a long, hard road. Praise God, all of His grace, you will be glorified. But there can be a long, hard road between predestined and glorified if we do it our way. We want to do it God's way. We want to get as beneath God as we can, walking in righteousness, walking in the light of His Word. Not with creative obedience, right? Creative, which is actually disobedience, but actual obedience to the Word of God. That's where you're going to find your blessing, well beneath the will of God. And so here he is, out in the wilderness. I believe it's, it's about six miles north of Jerusalem. He comes to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. And he laid down in that place to sleep. I mean, times are not good when your pillow's a rock. Build your life on the rock of Jesus Christ, or you may find your head on a rock all alone. Verse 12, then he dreamed. And behold, a ladder was set up on earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Despite Jacob's sin, despite his mother's sin, God is gracious. Again, the the very definition of grace, unmerited favor. God did not Look in the womb of Rebekah and choose Jacob over Esau because Jacob was better. He chose him so that his purpose and election would stand. So that he gets the glory and not man. And so God has grace upon this sinner. And praise God that he has grace upon that sinner or he would not have grace upon you, O sinner. And you would never make it to glorified either except that for God's purpose, He elected you. And therefore, He called you. And therefore, He justified 
you, and therefore he will glorify you. He will not let you go. Which is the P of our precious tulip, the preservation or perseverance of the saints. You will persevere because you will be preserved by the hand of God. Now we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not presumption. Fear and trembling knowing that it's God who works within us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. His head is on a rock, but He has a glorious dream, a dream sent from God. He dreamt, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending. He has a vision of of God working amongst men through His holy messengers, that God is in control that God is sovereign over all the events of men, that there's a spiritual battle, a spiritual element behind the physical realm, that God is in control. And praise God for that reality. Praise God that we're not left to ourselves. Praise God for His ministering angels. Praise God for His sovereign grace that sustains us, that does not let us go. Not one will be lost from his hand. Verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And you... And in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And so God, in his astounding grace, visits Jacob in this time of despair, in this time of loneliness, in the time where his head is resting on a rock in a wilderness. And this wilderness is but about six miles from Jerusalem. And he says, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. A land, a seed, a blessing. These are the Three vital, fundamental, continually repeated, continuously repeated elements of the Abrahamic covenant. And you cannot get around the land, a seed, and a blessing. This land is your land. It's the land of the Jews. Jacob will become Israel. God will change his name and make him a nation with 12 sons who become the 12 tribes. Verse 14, also your descendants, who will come of those 12 tribes, also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. And in you and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Ultimately, that will be fulfilled only through Jesus Christ. North, south, east, and west will be fulfilled in its fullest sense through Jesus Christ. As we are all children of Abraham, spiritually speaking, the repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, who is the seed who came of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who makes their descendants as the sand of the seashore and as the stars of the heavens. 
in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. Hear God today. He will keep you. He will not let you go. And he will bring you to his promised land. You are no better than Jacob and probably worse. I certainly would raise my hand. And God did not choose you because you're good. There are none that he could choose on that foundation. He chose you because he is good. And he chose in his goodness to make you not just good, but holy. The perfect holiness of his own son. And once he has washed you with the blood of his own lamb, his own son, you are a child of God. And you will always be called a child of God. You will be made like a temple or like a pillar in the temple of heaven, a permanent resident. Hell forever closed, heaven forever open. You will be in the new heavens and new earth in which only righteousness dwells. You will see all the saints of God saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus who would come or Jesus who has come. You will see them all. You will know them all. You will walk amongst them. And none are greater than any of the others. For it's God's greatness that's on display in the redemption of mankind. I'm with you. I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Now, he doesn't know yet how many long years he will earn his first wife and earn his second wife and earn his flocks before he comes home. But the Lord is telling him what he needs to know to sustain him through those years and to give him the confidence and to give him the conviction that you're not to stay. You are to come home to the land that I have given you. Now, God keeps saying that he's given this land to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, Jacob, and yet they still do not possess it. And they believe God. They trust God's promises. And they dwell in tents as citizens, not of this world, but of the kingdom to come. Trusting in God day by day. Verse 16, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So he has a a spiritual mountaintop that that, that erupted like a volcano out of the valley that he was in. And the Lord is so good and gracious if we'll cry out to him. He is so good and gracious even when we don't cry out to him to, to love us and sustain us and hold us fast. Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. What did he think? I'm all alone. I'm all alone in this world. Woe is me. All I have is this pillow, a rock for a pillow. That's pretty low. You know, I've slept in a lot of bad places. I've slept in a lot of deserts in the earth. I've slept actually very near there in the desert, in Jordan. But never once to have a rock for a pillow. And I had the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And as hard as it was at times to find Christian fellowship, I had some Christian fellowship in those years in the Marine Corps traversing the deserts of the earth. And praise God, I met with God in those deserts. I prayed to God in those deserts. I experienced providential, glorious answers to prayer in those deserts. 
And that became the foundation of my Christian life and the training ground for the ministry that would follow all these decades later. Trust God. Hold fast to God. And he may ordain that you have a rock for a pillow at some point. But don't doubt that God is in that place. God is omnipresent and he's omniscient. And to say that God is good is nearly blasphemous. God is so very good to his children. He is a perfect father. And if he has ordained that your pillow be a rock, it is perfectly ordained. And it's for your good. It's not a curse. It comes from the hand of your loving father. And here, Jacob rises up and says, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. I had a similar experience years ago. I was in the Marine Corps, leaving my wife and children for the first time to go away for six months overseas. And the world was kind of sporty at that time. And, and you know, whether you're going to come back or not is questionable. And, and I really biblically felt convicted. You know, I need to be here for my family. I need to be here for my wife. The Marine Corps has taken me away. And I was, you know, woe is meism. I was suffering woe is meism. And I got on that plane low. And figuratively speaking, my head was on a rock. And yet I was praying, and I sat on the plane, and there was one seat left. I was the last one on because I didn't want to leave my bride. Last one on. And on Southwest Airlines, if you're the last one on, you may end up sitting in the front facing people that you don't want to face, especially when you're in the depths of your self-wallowing despair. And so I leaned up against the bulkhead there, the, the window, and closed my eyes and pretended to sleep. And lo and behold, uh, these kids are they're sitting across me are kicking me. And their grandparents you know, are telling them to stop, you know, you know, stop, but they keep kicking me. And so I opened my eyes and I smiled. It's, it's okay, I've got kids, it's, it's all good. And, and we begin to talk and I find out they're not their grandparents at all. The children are flying unaccompanied. And this old couple are dear, sweet old saints who begin to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with me. I'm already born again, but my head's on a rock. And I'm feeling like this isn't the will of God. What am I doing here? And this man then turns from sharing the gospel with me, discerning that I'm a Christian, to sharing his life testimony. As a World War II veteran who left that very bride he's sitting next to for three years during World War II. And he told me of God's faithfulness to sustain them. And he was in virtually every battle on every continent, (laughs) and the Lord sustained him and brought him back to his bride. And now he was flying back from his great-granddaughter's wedding, flying back to his vast ranch (laughs) that the Lord had blessed him with. I don't know that there's another man on the planet who would have been a more perfect man to be sitting across from me to share his life testimony. Do you know how I got off that plane? I got off that plane saying, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven, this Southwest Airlines airplane. God is here. And I knew by that amazing providence that I was in the hand of God, not the hand of the Marine Corps. Now, I love the Marine Corps. It blessed me with many adventures all over the earth to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it was that providential grace of God that convinced my young Christian mind and soul that
that I was in God's will and in his hand, that he was with me and I was exactly where he wanted me. And it set me free not to be a, a depressed or sorrowful man. Woe was me, I had to leave my wife. Or even just a dutiful Marine, I'm going to do my duty. But to be a joyous, dutiful Marine, I'm going to do my duty for God and country. I'm going to preach Christ all over the planet. I'm going to come back to my wife rejoicing in what God has done. And that's exactly what the Lord did. My first open-air sermon was on the beach of Somalia. As our lieutenant said, Corporal O'Neill, preach us the gospel. And I preached it out of the same Gideon New Testament that the Lord had used to save my soul in boot camp. And I'm still in contact with that lieutenant today. And many of those Marines who were on that beach are now professing Christ and listening to sermons I preach from this pulpit. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and held me fast and carried me all over the world and brought me back again to my family and to this very day and sustained me through many trials and hardships. And you too, may the grace of God that we see on Scripture Open your eyes to the grace of God that, that has been in your own life. If you haven't seen it yet or if you've forgotten, maybe you're in a head-on-a-rock situation now. God is in this place. Whatever place you're in, He's in it. And He means to bless you in it. Verse 18, Jacob rose in the morning, took the stone that he had put in his head, and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. Now, I tried to pour oil in that Southwest Airline jet. They wouldn't let me. Don't know why. But the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. And so God strengthened his faith. Now, the Lord doesn't always give us providential blessings. The Lord does not always at all speak to us audibly or give us dreams. The Lord doesn't always drop World War II veterans in the right seat at the right time. But He's given us His holy word that we would learn these things from the Scriptures. That our faith would be sustained, and not just sustained, victorious as we live this one precious life for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this grand tale of your amazing grace upon wretched sinners. To God be the glory, all the glory, sola de gloria. We confess, Lord, we only bring our sin, but you lavish grace and mercy and love and the blood of Jesus upon us to make us righteous, to wash us whiter than snow, Lord. Father, for those whose heads are upon rocks by your Sovereign design, may they, Father, know you mean it for their good, and may they look up this day and say that God is in this place. May they not just be sustained, but be made victorious. May they walk in that victory until, Lord, they are glorified, for they most certainly will be glorified. You will not let them go. We praise you and thank you in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.